Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilbur. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. John Pilger has a piece in Consortium News entitled Silencing the Lambs, How Propaganda Works. Lenny Reifenstahl said her epic films glorifying the Nazis depended on a, quote, submissive void, end quote, in the German public. This is how propaganda is done. Well, is this what Americans are being subjected to today? For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and former president of the National Economics Association. He's Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So Lenny Reifenstahl, she was a German film director, photographer, and actress. She was known for her seminal role in producing Nazi propaganda. She was one of Hitler's leading propagandists whose epic films glorified Nazis. She told Pilger, he interviewed her, and she told him that the, quote, patriotic messages, end quote, of her films were dependent on, not on orders from above, but on what she called the submissive void of the German public. And and she was asked, did that include the liberal educated bourgeoisie? And, and, And she said, yes, especially them. Your thoughts on the applicability of this process back in the 30s and the 40s to where we are today, Dr. Tahid? Yeah, I think this uh, this um, uh, article by Pilger is is very informative. Uh, looking back at this history of this Nazi propagandist who developed techniques that that led to uh, the uh, the state of Germany, the the country of Germany. Uh, going into a full Nazi direction, even though the, the data uh, uh, prior to that would indicate that, that the Nazis should not have gone in that direction. They were, they were uh, uh, slow walked into that direction. And I think uh, Reffenstahl um, uh, lays lays, lays some, uh, some information here on, on how she accomplished that. Uh, I think it's very applicable today because even though uh, things have changed uh, in terms of technology and so forth. Human nature hasn't changed. The ability of people to be propagandized or led in directions that they, they may not have thought about before. I don't think that's changed, certainly, in not uh, since, since World War II, uh, probably even in thousands of years. What has changed, of course, is the technology that allows that uh, propaganda to be more widespread, uh, and so it's actually possibly easier to uh, to uh, propagandize today than it was in the, in the 1940s and 30s. One of the things that I think is in, in important and interesting uh, about this particular article, where uh, one particular passage where John Pilger says, she told me that the patriotic messages of her films were dependent not on orders from above, but on what she called the submissive void of the German public. Did that include the liberal, educated bourgeoisie, I ask? Yes, 
especially them, she said. And, you know, I think it's interesting, particularly in the in the days and times that we live. And then, of course, you know, Malcolm X's comments about, you know, the white liberals and, my, Mar, uh, you know, and uh, Martin Luther King, all of that. Your thoughts on uh, on all of that, uh, Dr. Tawheed? Yeah, I think the real tragedy in terms of the success of, of propaganda in this day and time is the, the tragedy is on the left. Um, you know, you, you, have, you have liberals now, or even progressives, who are either denying or ignoring that there are Nazis in Ukraine, where a couple of years ago, in fact, they were um, very much known, uh, it was very much understood that there were Nazis in Ukraine, that those Nazis were, were important and successful in, in, in overthrowing uh, the, the, the Ukrainian elected government with, with U.S. support in 2014. And so liberals uh, and progressives have, have, are, are standing on their heads now uh, trying to deny that there's Nazi involvement in, in, in the Ukraine. I, I remember some time ago listening to a, another progressive on a progressive station, another commentator, who uh, was uh, trying to, to, to deny that the Nazis, oh, they're there in Ukraine, these neo-Nazis, but he had been to Ukraine earlier, had talked to real Nazis who had, uh, who had uh, served uh, in the, uh, the, the Nazi army in, in, with Hitler or under Hitler and said that these neo-Nazis are not real Nazis. I, I wanted to call in and say, especially for black folks, uh, real Nazis and fake Nazis still have a problem with black folks. They may not have a problem with white folks. So, so this, 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 this denial of the left that there's danger in Ukraine uh, from neo-Nazis is, is, I think, very much especially liberals in, in the uh, Reifenstahl's um, uh, comments. You, you mentioned that it's, it's easier to propagandize today, and I, fi- I find that very interesting. And, I, and going back to, to Pilger's piece where he talks about the, uh, the media, uh, it, or do we in the West live in a media society where brainwashing is insidious and relentless? Uh, and he also talks about the impact of social media. And I think it's that social media aspect of this that— he, he says the United States dominates the, the world's media. All but one of the top ten companies are in North America. The internet and social media, Google, Google, Twitter, and Facebook, are American-owned and controlled. Because the impact that that has had on attention span. You know, I, I I tell my son who's in college. You know, when I was in school, we had three basically three major newspapers to read. We didn't have the Internet. We didn't have computers. You had to go to the library and sit down and read a newspaper. You had to have an, atten- an, an attention span. And, and so now with, uh, with these clips and everything is trying to be condensed into a certain number of characters, it's becoming, to me, incredibly more difficult to transmit thought because people can't pay attention. Yes, I, I think Pilger is making the uh, distinction between an information society, which this has often been called, and, and the correct media society, in which uh, a few media companies uh, can, can not only uh, put out disinformation or information that's slanted, they can in fact tailor that information to particular audiences because they collect other information on you um, automatically. 
And so they know how to approach um, uh, their their media watchers uh, to get different opinions, um, um, uh, to, to, to get them to accept different opinions, because they know more about their psychology than a newspaper. I mean, on the newspaper, you're, you're receiving uh, in the new media society, they are getting information on you, and they're using it to to uh, to propagandize. And one thing, just really quickly, is what also gets lost in many instances is context. So statements are transmitted on your phone, blurbs, but without context, you can truly be misled. Go ahead, Garland. There's another interesting article. A whistleblower claims FBI officials instructed agents not to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop ahead of the 2020 presidential election, saying the Bureau was, quote, not going to change the outcome of the election again. You know, the, the more you look into this, it gets obvious that the FBI was kind of up to no good. Whether, you know, you like Trump or not, they were up to no good. Here's what I think is interesting. A few weeks ago, a few or rather months ago, when the um, Uhuru movement, the African Black Socialist Party was attacked, the conservatives were completely quiet. And for many years, you know, uh, uh, throughout the 50s and 60s, 60s, the FBI legally went after socialists and communists. They went after the civil rights movement, on and on and on, and people screamed it. And now the conservatives are seeing them, and they finally woke up. Before it was, we got to support the blue, and we support, and now they're feeling the, you know, the, the, the wrath of the FBI. They're on the wrong side of it, and all of a sudden they're shocked. Your thoughts on the fact that some people are finally figuring out what we knew long ago, that the FBI has been up to no good. It's been, a, you know, just a, a, an arm of power for the state and actually illegal and reckless. Your thoughts? Well, of course, what, what is, what is uh, not perplexing but certainly uh, ironic is that uh, during the, uh, the Hillary Clinton um, uh, campaign, uh, when the uh, you know the Russians were uh, were accused of hacking into into our server and so forth, it was the FBI that became the hero to the left. Uh, in these left discussions, I'm always uh, and more and more uh, instructed by the fact that uh, perhaps the black community might have a different view of, of the FBI and of law enforcement in general than other liberals. Uh, it, it's not just the conservatives who were silent. It was liberals and pro- so-called progressives who were silent about that. Uh, there were very few um, um, uh, organizations on the left who pointed out that th- this is this is a dangerous situation where the FBI can simply raid a, a an organization without any evidence, without making any arrests. Uh, simply to intimidate because it doesn't fit into the national agenda. Uh, this means that any um, um, a progressive or leftist organization can be raided. That's that's kind of something that the that the uh, the the, uh, the militia people on the right uh, have 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 known for a while, and black folks on the left have known for a while. But it is that that, that center and uh, liberals and conservatives who are just finding this out. And the question becomes, I guess, at at what point or, or at what time is a crime not a crime? And I guess it's when it's committed close to an election because, <laughs> because you know, the FBI gets the gets the laptop and there's if 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 we believe the reports that have been the, the stories that have been reported, there are problems with Hunter Biden's emails that refer to the fact that his father was getting a cut off the top 
uh, from the gas companies in Ukraine. That that's a problem. And China as well, in, in terms of it, yes. dealing. You know, Joe Biden was was to get the who was the big guy in the Chinese deal was to get ten percent of the action. Um, you know, the FBI, in fact, has had 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 that laptop a year before the election. So so to come down to weeks before the election and say we're not going to investigate, they had sat on that information for a year uh, and and could have done an investigation. And perhaps they they uh, knowing what was on that and you, you're having the um, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, knowing what's on that, they, they didn't want to disturb the possibility of, of uh, a Joe Biden uh, running, because uh, this would have been during the primary, not during the general election. And here's here's another, you mentioned Hillary Clinton's DNC server. Here Here's another similarity, which I think people need to pay attention to. When so when the when the emails get leaked from Hillary's server, Hi- Hillary blames Russian hacking as in terms of how the information was obtained. So everybody ran and focused on alleged Russian hacking, and nobody paid attention to the contents of the emails. And what the e- what the emails proved was that Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the the then head of the DNC plotted and successfully prevented Bernie Sanders from being the nominee. Well, here we have the content of Hunter Biden's laptop. The emails are being ignored as we get distracted by the FBI. So go ahead. Yeah, no, exactly uh, the the point you were making uh, when we were discussing the Pilger article Information and media are, are different, and, and what, what gets our attention is the sensationalism, the information that we should be looking at gets, gets completely ignored. And, and, and so, yes, we are a media society, and media is, is leading us uh, down, the, down the path to slaughter. Another interesting article, Decolonization, Alba TCP Supports Proposals for Historical Truth Commission. And I do think it's particularly of interest now in South America, in, uh, in Venezuela, et cetera. They're looking at a South, Ameri- a South African type truth commission where they look at what the U.S. empire, the U.K., et cetera, the colonial powers have done to them and, they, and, and document it. And I think with the things that are going on now, it's particularly important to do those things. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is uh, certainly connected to the uh, surgence or resurgence of, of the reparations movement in, for African-Americans, uh, uh, descendants of, of slaves in this country. Uh, other other uh, persons in other countries uh, were also victims of that same process uh, in, in terms of being enslaved in their own country under, under what we call colonialism. Uh, but, but there is a, a, an accounting that needs to be done of how much damage has been done so that uh, we, can, we can account for what the U.S. and what the U.K. and what the European countries, France, and so forth, owe to the rest of the world for their, what it says, 300 years of genocidal colonialism. Uh, that accounting is, is occurring all over the world. Uh, one, of, one of the things that, that's, of course, interesting in this is that in this movement to a multipolar world, neither China nor Russia as is 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 guilty of this this colonial of, of having taken advantage in this colonial period of these of these countries that are now looking for a reckoning. 
In fact, when you to and I'm to that point with the passing of the queen and now a whole lot of folks want to do a whole lot of hand wringing and carry flowers to the embassy. Well, folks need to understand what actually British colonialism was was all about and how ruthless and brutal it was. And I've heard some people say, and I, unfortunately, I've heard some some African Americans say. Oh, well, look at the number of African countries that gained their independence while she was queen. And the point is, well, then you must not understand what the liberation movements in those countries were all, was all about and the armed struggle that they had to engage in. And when they were engaged in armed struggle, who were they fighting? They were getting slaughtered by the British. They were, get, they were fighting the British, and in many instances, who was backing the liberation movements in those countries? It was Russia. Exactly. And, and so the, the British Empire, which the sun at one point never set on, uh, be, it, it just became too large to manage, and it, it went the way of all empires uh, that have overreached and have um, 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 uh, done atrocious things to their subjects. It simply imploded. There's nothing that, that uh, Queen Elizabeth could have done to prevent that, and, uh, and, and so it, it imploded on her watch. That's just the way things happen when liberation comes along. Oh, in fact, when she found out that the king had died and she became queen, she was on Mount Kenya at one of her um, uh, mm-hmm. royal resorts. Uh, but things weren't working out real well for the Kenyans at that time. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and what's interesting, of course, is that uh, you have countries around the world, particularly in the Caribbean, that are now waking up and denouncing yes. this, uh, as, being, as being part of the British Commonwealth and looking for true independence. And they are also looking for, for reparations and, and will do their own studies on the damage that has been done. I think they're watching the Wizard of Oz singing Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, we greatly appreciate it. Enjoy your weekend. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Earlier this week, our next guest presented his Labor Day 2022, The State of U.S. Unions and Worker, his annual Labor Day overview of the condition of American unions and the working class. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy. He teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He is, of course, Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, sir, welcome back. My pleasure. Glad to join you. So why does union membership overall still remain stagnant in the U.S. despite 60 to 70 percent of workers saying in polls and surveys that they would that they want to unionize well you know you got to break it down between um large employers manufacturing transport on the one hand and uh 
smaller employers, um, services, and so forth on the other. Uh, and you got to consider what have been the policies of both parties for the last 40 years under neoliberalism. Uh, well, you know, answering the latter question very clearly, it began with Reagan. And the whole idea was to break the industrial unions, mm -hmm. uh, which they successfully did by a number of tactics. One was uh, uh, just move the jobs offshore. Uh, and that started in the 80s, and that was very successful, which was uh, facilitated by uh, governments by tax cuts for corporations that moved offshore. They actually incented <laughs> corporations to move offshore to move the jobs offshore. Well, that created a concern uh, among uh, you know remaining uh, operations and unions and workers in the U.S. of uh, job security. So uh, what you got was um, contracts that gave up concession bargaining, it was called, gave up uh, a lot of what they had achieved in previous uh, decades. Uh, and uh, secondly, you get this big drop in membership uh, in manufacturing and big corporations simply because um, uh, they've displaced a lot of workers in manufacturing uh, with um, uh, technology, mm -hmm. you know, capital investment. Those two things have a big impact. And then, of course, you throw in free trade agreements uh, that facilitate the offshoring. And uh, those three elements uh, pretty much devastated union membership that at the time Reagan came to office was maybe 20, 25% in the private sector. Uh, and uh, now it's like six or 7%. So they really broke the backs of uh, industrial unions and manufacturing and in construction through other tactics I won't, won't get in it into for reasons of, um, of time here. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the economy uh, turned very much towards uh, services, and services are more difficult to uh, organize because they're smaller, uh, smaller in operation. And you can see that with uh, difficulties uh, with uh, the uh, Starbucks organizing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's easy to uh, uh, maybe to get an, ele an election in one of the Starbucks shops um you know you have 15 20 people uh but try to get a contract after it and you'll play hell because starbucks will either just shut the thing down or it'll just stall you and uh, you can't hurt a big company like starbucks by negotiating uh, one location with 15 people that doesn't mean you shouldn't organize because the objective will be eventually to integrate those bargaining units um but it's harder to organize the uh, services. And then you overlay on top of that, uh, and we're still talking about the private sector, you overlay on top of that uh, this industry that has built up in the 70s and 80s ever since of professional uh, uh, law firm union busting, uh, preventing unions. They got it down to a science, and uh, the uh, labor law uh, really assists uh, uh, the employer rather than the worker to organize. So uh, that, that's been a big obstacle. To some extent, too, um, you know, the leadership of unions have not been very uh, creative uh, about how to organize the unorganized. They are partly responsible, I think. Um, 
that's why you know you see like the Amazon Labor Union, which is independent of the old old guard uh, AFL-CIO, uh, having some success. Because uh, organizing, unionizing is always uh, from the bottom up. It's not from the top down. Um, I say that as a former organizer myself for four different unions um, long ago, long ago. <laughs> uh, so that's the reason why in the private sector, all those reasons, you've had a collapse of union membership. Uh, now, in the public sector, uh, where you can't offshore the jobs, uh, and uh, they're much more difficult to uh, displace by new technology and capital investment. Uh, you know, you don't have that collapse of uh, membership. That's that's. Uh, but in, in places in some states where um, red states, uh, you have a, a new force in which you, you get uh, right wing Republicans and so forth, uh, who are trying to some extent in some places to um, return public sector unionism to the old uh, civil civil service rules. In other words, pretty much just uh, exempt people from joining unions. Um, and then you've got in the red states, I think 27 or 8 states, uh, what's called uh, uh, union uh, uh, open shops or quote right to word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, open shops, which means uh, the union can't negotiate uh, in a contract that everyone's got to join it. So uh, you get a lot of people who are just, um, you know, free riders uh, who don't join the union. The union is not as strong if they don't. And uh, all these, you know, a web, a legal web I talk about has uh, built up over the last five, six decades uh, around labor workers uh, to make it almost not impossible, but very difficult to unionize and organize, even though they want to. Uh, all these headwinds exist. Mm -hmm. uh, that's mm -hmm. why, you know, even the old AFL-CEO continually raises uh, demands uh, with, with their Democrat Party friends that are ignored uh, to um, uh, alleviate some of these great disadvantages. You know, under Obama, it was the card check. Let the, let the just... Workers sign up for a union if they want a union and don't go through this months-long process where the employer gets to work on them uh, and, and scare them and intimidate them and bribe them, uh, which makes organizing difficult. Well, Obama didn't even push that out of committee, you know. And we got the same thing going on with the so-called PRO Act under Biden. The Democrats always propose something uh, for the unions to get them uh, to get their members to vote for them. And then when the time comes, uh, the legislation just sits in committee. And that's the case with the PRO Act. Uh, so all those reasons are mm -hmm. why you have the collapse uh, in membership, even though you have 60, 70 percent but and even higher young people in their 20s, you know, maybe 80 percent want to join a union. Dr. Jack, speaking of collapse, Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss, has a plan to help households deal with energy costs, saying the bills will be capped at $2,800 per household per year for the next two years. It's estimated that could cost $150 billion. So supposedly they're going to um, they're going to borrow the money. Um, there's a lot of discussion about it. There's not a lot of discussion about the true cause of it, which is sanctions. But your thoughts on that particular plan, it seems to me just they're going to hand out a lot lot of money to the energy companies again, but your thoughts on it, Dr. Jack? Yeah, it's it's a way of um, 
relieving some of the pressure on households, but ensuring that uh, the energy companies still keep making super profits. You know, uh, a, a, a more reasonable approach uh, would be to uh, slap price controls uh, on uh, on the oil and energy companies. Uh, and that way, uh, you know, roll back the prices maybe to six months before, and that way relieve the cost pressure on households. Uh, but that, of course, would make uh, the companies pay. Uh, this way, uh, they they buy some um, relief from household discontent, and they keep the profits going for, for the energy companies, you see. Uh, and that's the problem with, with that particular approach, just subsidizing. It's a way of subsidizing the... Uh, energy companies, just like uh, the central banks uh, subsidize the private banks with their policies. Uh, and, you know, fiscal fiscal policies also uh, largely serve to subsidize uh, businesses. Go- going back to the, uh, a point that you made about unionizing, you've got Elizabeth Warren introducing a bill to repeal right-to-work laws that were enacted by Republicans in 27 states. She says Republicans and their corporate interest backers have imposed state laws with only one goal, destroy unions and discourage workers from organizing. Uh, Your thoughts on uh, Elizabeth Warren's efforts here to repeal right-to-work laws? Well, her analysis is absolutely correct. You know, the role of right-to-work laws. But I I think Warren's, uh, that's just, uh, and an anticipating election appeal mm-hmm. to to labor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way the federal government can dictate to states uh, to um, repeal uh, right-to-work laws. The states have to do that. The legislatures have to do that, right? And that's that's you know part of their uh, their right to do that under under the the way the laws work in this country, the federalism and so forth, right? Uh, so. Uh, you know, I, it's a political maneuver, but the justification is is absolutely correct. You know, the right to work laws, and they've been expanding, by the way, states to more and more states, uh, are a way of really keeping labor, uh, organized labor, uh, you know, weakened uh, with all the other tactics that are used in this country to keep uh, uh, unions and workers down. It's it's a, you know, it, it's an amazing capitalist uh, uh, offensive against. Uh, uh, workers uh, to control, you know, the, the, the their share of the income. And that's why you see, um, you know, uh, real wages have not risen since 1982. And they're going backward even more right now, of course, with inflation uh, much higher, uh, double. Inflation is double uh, even the best union contracts being negotiated. And of course, if you don't have a union, you you get nothing, uh, and unless you are um, have certain skills that they really need, uh, that they'll pay you a little bit more, like a data scientist or something. They'll pay you because you produce a lot of profit for them. But for most people, uh, if you don't have a union, and you know, vast majority don't. I think even when you put private uh, public sector unions into uh, into the mix there, you got maybe 10% of uh, the workforce, labor force, uh, unionized in this country. Uh, you know, the lowest it's been since uh, like 1919, I think. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's the situation. So so what, what, what Warren is proposing is to repeal Section 14B, National Labor Relations Act, 
which is what gives the states the authority to impose right-to-work laws. So by repealing that section of the National Labor Relations Act, I don't know if that could be retroactive, but what it what she might be trying to do is is to prevent states from doing this in the future. Well, it it wouldn't. You know, you can repeal it from the act. That just means they they can't refer to the National Labor Relations Act as justification for right to work. Uh, but they'd pass it anyway. But they'd still be able to do it. In the state. Yeah, they'd Got still it. be able to do it. You know, that's what I mean. It's kind of a, a political ploy, in my view, by, by Warren. Um, I'm not opposed to what she's saying because it raises the, the awareness of what the hell's going on mm-hmm. with the National Labor Relations Act. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, personal political strategy involved in that. Um, and it's not going to go anywhere. That's for damn sure. At an emergency meeting Friday, ministers asked the European Commission, the European Union's executive arm, to draft plans to cap the revenue earned by nuclear, renewable, and other non-gas producers of electricity and to redistribute the money to businesses and customers. Dr. Jack, this economy, the European economy was, economy was built on inexpensive Russian energy. Number one, if you could comment on what they're doing, and is there a way for them to have the kind of economy they have without that catalyst, Dr. Jack? Well, to answer your last last question, uh, uh, it's very clear that the European economy is entering a period of extreme stress here, far, far worse than the U.S. right now. Uh, all the estimations are uh, that inflation uh, is going to be 10 to 20 percent. It's already 10 percent. And particularly the UK is worse off. I've seen estimates estimates of inflation of 23 uh, percent, you know, coming in the next 12 months. I mean, that's <laughs> incredible. Uh, at the same time, the economies are contracting dramatically here. Uh, they're all in technical recession right now. Um, and... Uh, you know the cost is going going up. Uh, the European elites are are really you know some people say well gee why are they going along uh, with these American policies of sanctions, which is driving the price of not only oil and gas up but industrial commodities of all kinds as well. Uh, why why are they the elites in Europe going along with this? Well. For several several reasons, you know. One is uh, I think they're intimidated by the U.S. The U.S. could pull some strings and really uh, put a lot of pressure on their economy at the same time. Uh, these elites uh, benefit nicely. You know, they're not really affected, um, you know, by the problems that are going on uh, and, and growing. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they're pretty much integrated. Uh, Europe, you know, is pretty much... Um, you know, an appendage of the U.S. now, uh, politically, you know, NATO. I mean, there's no real foreign pol- independent foreign policy in Europe. They don't even make a pretension of that anymore. I mean, the French did for a while, but, you know, that's all gone because the U.S. has a lock on NATO now because it brought in all of those, uh, in recent decades, all of those uh, small Eastern European countries, right? And, uh, they're really dependent on the U.S., and the U.S. leverages those uh, countries to control NATO against, you know, any you know, semblance of independence by the French or the Germans. So politically, there's no foreign policy independent there. 
they're going along with the U.S. on sanctions on Russia. And by the way, uh, they're moving in the same direction, uh, trying to get China out of the Euro European economy as well. Well, if China and Russia move out, uh, the U.S. moves in, you know, and uh, economically I'm talking about. And U.S. companies, uh, you know, the, the elites believe uh, that the U.S. is going to provide them through the winter uh, the gas and the oil that they may need. Uh, so they think that uh, with the fact that they can ration energy will get them through the winter uh, and they will throw some some fiscal uh, benefits, you know, like the British you were talking about, at the households to placate them and, and put a damper on public uh, discontent and, and uh, protest, right? So those three things, uh, throw some money at it, keep the protest down, uh, get the U.S. to provide and ration. In the meantime, they think they can get through the winter with the sanctions, and they think that this thing in Ukraine will be over by the spring, so that's why they're going along with it. They think they have a formula to get them through it. It's interesting. We, we have just about a minute left when you say they think they can get through the winter. It's, a, it's, it's interesting what that means because my question would be, you can get through the winter, but at what cost? Right. And I don't mean, I don't mean financially. I mean physically. And how many people are going to freeze to death as you, quote unquote, make it through the winter? We have just about a minute, Dr. Jack. Yeah, well, they think uh, rationing is, is, is a, the word for it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, rationing uh, households and even businesses will get them through it. And uh, a combination of rationing and, uh, rationing and uh, throwing money at households to uh, – okay. uh, that that's that's the solution, and they think they can get through it that way. Well, when as Garden likes to refer to him, when General Winter uh, descends upon <laughs> Europe, we'll see what the troops, <laughs> how the troops will be able to resist. Yeah, it's a it's it's a, they're rolling the dice, no doubt about mm -hmm. it. But uh, you know they're they're more intimidated and afraid of what the U.S. will do economically if they don't go along with the sanctions oh, gotcha. than they are right now of their own populists protesting. So you know you get. You got to get more protests. That's a frightening reality. Dr. Jack, thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Cuban government criticizes Biden for renewing act that maintains embargo. Both the island's president and foreign minister rejected on Twitter the memorandum from the U.S. president that extends said policy until September 14, 2023. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He hosts Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. He's a Pan-Africanist and internationalist organizer and a member of the Black Alliance for Peace, Netfa Freeman. As always, Netfa, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. 
Before we get to uh, this issue with Cuba, wanted to get your take on uh, the passing. Uh, the Queen passed yesterday. We were talking off air about how confused we are at the response by a lot of African Americans who are mourning uh, the passing uh, of 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 this uh, colonialist. Uh, folks who fail to not really understand world history. And it's not so much, in my opinion, it's not so much her. It's her family. And I mean, she was related to King Leopold. And so if anybody knows anything about the Congo and the Belgians in Congo and what they did to the black Congolese, you know, so anyway, your thoughts, Netfa Freeman. Yeah, I mean, the Belgians and Congo, just Britain directly uh, itself, you know, being, I mean, they used to say the sun never set on the British Empire. Britain's one of the paramount uh, colonizers of the continent of Africa. It was the, it was took part in the slave trade. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. So the main thought that I think that we should understand, and I, I think it's also, it just speak what's happening particularly in the media, but basically what we could say that the U.S. preoccupation with the British royal family, it demonstrates the inherent Eurocentric and white supremacist nature of the United States. You know, and the United States is in, in all its claims to be multicultural and to be this melting pot and to stand alone, you know, as this thing. It really is nothing but an extension of Western Europe, particularly uh, Britain. And Britain it being the kind of what you would call a child or whatever offspring of the British Empire. I mean, that's how the U.S. was founded as a settler colonial state. And so when people mourn that, mourn like the queen or, or talk about have this regard, some kind of uh, regard for the royal family or really anything in Europe, it's, it demonstrates it's, it's emblematic of a colonial mentality. It means that we are still, you know, we have colonized minds, and we're not, and we don't necessarily really want to blame people or despair <laughs> people because they're vic- we're victims of constant bombarding of propaganda and whatnot. And even those of us who might um, be re- more recognizing of the the class aspects of the system that we live under, less recognizing uh, the white supremacist aspects of it, even because most of the time, you know, in this country, they want to confine uh, white supremacy to like the, you know, strange people who are walking around, you know, the Klan and, and even people storm the Capitol, all that kind of stuff. But the United States, is it's, its system is a white supremacist, and this demonstrates it. It's a white supremacist, pan-European capitalist patriarchal project. And, and and inherently so. And this demonstrates it. The fact that they, you know, there's all over the news and people are going to put, they're not, they wouldn't do that for a king, a non-white king. They wouldn't do that for some king in Africa or something like that. And we don't, you know, our, we don't even understand our own connections to Africa or anyplace else to even under, to even have that kind of regard for, and we should be past, you know, feudalism anyway. Um, and, you know, but yeah, that's my thought. I think also um, it is interesting now metaphorically in that the collapse, I believe, of colonialism and neocolonialism is at hand. And I think metaphorically it's interesting that she dies as going into this winter when old, as Wilmer and I have been discussing, old General Winter is about to gallop into uh, northern Europe and, and, and do what he do what he does, that she would die metaphorically as it appears to me, if you look at what's happening in the global south, 
look at what's happening in South America where, you know, the, the people, the independence and indigenous movements and revolutionary movements are going forward. You look at total collapse in, a, in, in the West economically, et cetera, culturally. I, it's, metaphorically, I think it's interesting. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think so, too. And even as you, you brought up, because uh, even if we look at Africa, the, the, the Latin America and the Western this hemisphere and what we consider the, the pink top, some people call it the pink top. It's just like they all call it the progressive. That's one thing. But even where the continent is dominated, we could say, by still a comparable class in terms of them serving the interests of, the, of colonialism, Western European power, even them now are rejecting in a lot of ways because we saw, you know, they have, we just saw. Uh, what's her name? Linda Thomas Greenfield. I think we talked about this before. Greenfield and 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 what's the other? Blinken. Tony coming Blinken. To Tony Blinken coming coming to Africa to try to you know impose or kind of assert their influence because they're worried about you know how the, all the African countries voted when it came to them trying to sanction Russia and all that. And they weren't met favorably. People didn't roll no. up and say yes to Master what we <laughs> usually do. You know, and these are the comfort door class anyway. You know, so it's not like they represent the, the clarity of the glass working class masses. But even then, now, the legitimacy of the West is waning. So like you said, the neocolonialism is, is, under, is under threat just because it's legitimacy. One of the things I also found interesting is in listening to people say, well, if you look at the former uh, African, the, the, the African countries that were colonized by Britain and how during her rule or under her reign, these countries uh, uh, received, were liberated. The, the implicit in that statement is, the, is that she somehow liberated these countries, ignoring the armed struggle that these countries had to engage in. And I see some parallels here between what's happening, what was happening then and what's happening now in Ukraine, in that in some of those struggles, it was the Soviet Union that was backing the freedom movements in those African countries. That's interesting. Yeah, that's right. The Soviet Union and China. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was like the relationship was different. And even in China, was actually had to fight its own. You know, had to fight colonialism itself. And so, yeah, we're seeing the same uh, uh, continuation or more advanced expression of the multi. Actually, but it's still different. It's a multipolarism. Sure. That, that they're actually losing. They're losing ground, and they're worried about that. And just the whole notion that they're still probably, they really can't fathom. This, this, you know, white supremacy, and as you're saying, it's really delusional. I mean, they, they really can't fathom that we fought for our independence. That was a struggle. We had to fight for that. And that they were belligerent, trying to hold on, you know. And the notion we should be proud or glad <laughs> that they, you know, that they came and. If you look at Zimbabwe, for, for example, what was Rhodesia? And Robert Mugabe came out of the bush and led the armed struggle against Britain to free Rhodesia. And then he decides he's going to do his land reclamation. He agrees with Margaret Thatcher to provide, give the land back to the black Zimbabweans. Britain reneges on the deal. Reneges on the deal. The queen doesn't step in and say, no, 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 we're going to. No, she just went along with the flow. So, go ahead. Here's an interesting article. Cuban government criticizes Biden for renewing act that maintains embargo. Both the island's president and foreign minister rejected on Twitter the memorandum from the U.S. president that extends said policy until September 14th, 2023. Your thoughts, Nett for Freeman. 
Mm-hmm. It, 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 I, I would say this is also has some parallels to what we were just talking about in terms of legitimacy. The the um, the public opinion around the Cuba around Cuba and U.S. relations, the, their whole what they've tried to have around Cuba in terms of denigrating it, making it seem like a dictatorship. That stuff doesn't stand anymore. People know more. More people know now about the medical, you know, what they do in terms of medical contributions to the world. People train there. I mean, not everybody knows, but they still know. They can also see that Cuba's not any real threat. There's really no way of justifying the aggression, U.S. aggression. And it's been some time now that the um, that the public opinion has been for changing the U.S. Uh, policy. And so and then and, uh, Barack Obama recognized that. And now he wasn't trying to do something good, but he was at least trying to receive, do something that was com- uh, and more along the lines of public opinion. And when Trump rolled back everything, uh, he wrote back everything. Biden comes in, and he's more like, oh, you know, he's you know, he wants to continue the thing. It's not really about Biden. I don't want to make it about Biden, but the U.S. itself can't allow uh, examples like what Cuba has to stand. So the ninth, the, the Trading with the Enemy Act, and people really should be understanding this Trading with the Enemy Act goes all the way back to 1917, mm-hmm. and then they they created this 1917 over the years, and it was to give the president powers to. Uh, to curtail and, and oversee and restrict trade between the U.S. and other and what they call the enemies in times of war. Over the years, it's been amended so to include, so to be able to accommodate not, quote, unquote, in times of war and to expand, you know, with the countries that can be subject to it. It's been, uh, it was amended in 1933, 1977 again. Um, and it is what undergirds the, the bills. And then as Cuba was subjected to it, no, was Cuba subjected to that. And I can't remember the the year, but it was under subject 19. It was what the Kennedy administration did it. The John F. Kennedy administration subjected it to it. So it is uh, it is what undergirds the bills in Congress that facilitate the blockade. So what he did was it basically extended the blockade that under the the blockade. And it's and people have to understand this is not just trade because now what they've done they it includes why we call it a blockade those of us and not and not just an embargo because it includes all forms of destabilization and includes the money from the USAID and National Endowment for Democracy pumped into the country to to influence things and and, and co-op Cuban citizens and and it's even included uh, it has the you talk about the Guantanamo existing there all of that stuff is part of the assault on Cuba and qualifies as a blockade and that and it says something that the u.s would consider cuba an enemy you know under this and trading with the enemy act you're an enemy what has cuba done to be the enemy of the united states or to be enemy of any country for that matter and so it says something about it but i think that there this extension of it they have to do it it's been extended i think yearly it gets extended um or maybe or administration but they extend it because they can't uh, it's what it what's uh, undergirds the the bills uh, the the legislation that facilitates the the blockade the Torricelli Act and the Helms Burton Act. Well, Netfa, I know what Cuba has done. It's called the Cuban Revolution. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And 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 I want to ask, with that being the premise of the question, or. I, I, or observe that I see one of the other motivators behind Joe Biden extending this has to do 
with Haiti as well, that if the United States were to allow for better relationships with Cuba and for Cuba to become stronger, then the Cubans can claim, and not that they need this to do so, but the revolution was a success. And under no circumstance can a colonial hegemon, particularly one such as the United States, allow a black country to say our revolution was a success. And it's very important what you said of black country because a lot of people just don't think about the the population of African descendant people in Cuba, the the how pervasive it is and how the, and thinking of it as a decidedly African country, and that also the success it they can claim it they really should be able to claim it now correct because if it were not for the socialist system it would have collapsed a long time ago under the type of pervasive you know measures destabilization and undermining and blockade you know just subversion that's leveled against it it just wouldn't have been able to survive without the type of cooperation that they have domestically with their systems of health care and all this kind you know how they deal with literacy kinds of disaster literacy um you know education all of that and that also being able to uh have relations of solidarity international demonstrate itself as true international country, it just would have it wouldn't have been able to survive. And I think in that sense, they, it, Cuba should be proud to be able to claim that it's a successful revolution. And that's what really, you know, like you said, is what really gets into the crawl of the United States and the rulers in the United States. The Intercept, Pentagon Research Center quietly contradicts optimism of Defense Secretary Austin. On the same day Lloyd Austin lauded U.S. troops in Africa, the Pentagon's Africa Center released a report on rising terrorism there. What do we need to know about that, Netva? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> it sounds like we don't have a lot of time, but there's a lot to need to know about it. I mean, it's one just the U.S. has been able to actually attack Somalia with his drone war and kill up to 23 people in the last couple months. People don't hear about that. We hear about so much. So the coverage of Africa is really waning. You have to get, get find other sources. But the other thing about it is we have to understand is that because because of the nature of the U.S. and, and what it defined and how we actually need it as working class, particularly non-white working class people, that the rulers and the, the, the facilitators of AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command and these in these war, like in Somalia, these are not our, we don't hold share the same interests. So when they claim they're only killing militants or enemy combatants, quote unquote, and then we allow and we accept that definition or that characterization. What we're doing is accepting uh, the, the allowing our enemies, I'm going, I mean, I'm, that's what I have to say it that way, our enemies to define for us who our enemies are. They're allowing us to define this. And of course, your enemies are not going to steer you the right direction. And so there's a, there's billions of dollars, you know, the U.S. has spent $2.2 billion on security, quote-unquote, security assistance in Somalia. It's it's in, including uh, the, the, the Nod Brigade since 2009. It's, it's, it has condemned Somalia to what we refer to as the forever wars. When they talk about Somalia, when they talk about Africa, and that's why it is not done you never hear it in any kind of context of being something that will ever stop you know that it's it's africa is is supposed to be seen in as being in a perpetual state of needing assistance from the west to secure itself it's really a it's a you know and they and the, the destabilization and the militarization they've caused it and so we have to understand about it. They actually, did, and I'll just say this last part, more of this in terms of not necessarily just Somali, but 
the they appointed a new commander for AFRICOM, Lieutenant mm-hmm. Lieutenant General Michael Langley. Ironically enough, his name is Langley, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. um, and this is a black person. They want you know that Lloyd Austin is the Secretary of Defense is a black person, so they kind of you know they kind of hoodwink us with these kind of things when when the UN US UN ambassador uh Linda Thomas Greenfield went she spoke in Ghana talking about how she she was invoking the relationship between African quote unquote African Americans and the people on the African continent but everything she was saying was americanism type of you know mm-hmm. uh narrative she talked about WP Du Bois but of course she didn't talk about how he was attacked mm-hmm. by the US government his passport was taken all these kind of things so we have to become clear on on our interest and that the assaults on Africa are assaults on us on African people everywhere. And also quickly, didn't what didn't Du Bois first go to Africa to celebrate Kwame Nkrumah's election? That's right. Yeah, that's and, right. Who who they also helped overthrow? There we that net for Freeman. As always, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side, if you can imagine. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. FBI officials told agents not to investigate Hunter Biden laptop ahead of the 2020 election, according to a whistleblower. A whistleblower claims FBI officials instructed agents not to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop ahead of the 2020 presidential election, saying the bureau was, quote, not going to change the outcome of the election again, end quote. This is according to Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin. Well, I guess that begs the question, when is a crime not a crime? When it's uncovered prior to an American election. For insight into this, let's turn to our first panelist Friday. So that means it's panel time. We're joined by the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Good to be here. We're also joined by a political activist, independent journalist, and podcaster, Nico House. Nico, welcome. Thanks for having me back, gentlemen. So Senator Ron Johnson sends this letter, and he included the whistleblower claims in a letter to Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz this past Tuesday, quote, these new allegations provide even more evidence of FBI corruption and renew calls for you to take immediate steps to investigate the FBI's actions regarding the laptop, end quote. Johnson writes that individuals with knowledge of the FBI's apparent corruption told his office that FBI officials intentionally undermined efforts to investigate Biden's son. Nico, your thoughts on what does this tell us? What's the purpose of the FBI? What good is the FBI? And can the FBI be trusted? Nico House. Uh, I mean, I feel like the purpose of the FBI has been pretty clear, right? Isn't it just to shut down all dissent that can interfere with outcomes that the that would favor the uh, the people instead of the establishment, right? Yeah, I feel like they they they're literally here just to shut people down. I don't know. 
it's kind of like what the CIA's job is overseas. Same thing, but just foreign policy. They're clearly not here to uphold the law. I mean, once again, we can just look back to what James Comey said because I heard they referenced the FBI changing the outcome of the election, right? Had nothing to do with the fact she didn't campaign in multiple states that were important to win an election or the fact that she was just an overall awful person. It's just because the FBI read some emails and then chose not to indict her, right? But looking back at that, they never said she wasn't guilty. What they said was, well, she didn't mean to. The intent wasn't there, even though she did every single thing she was accused of. So clearly the FBI doesn't uphold, they're not there to uphold the law. They're just merely there to protect the, uh, the elite. Steve. Well, and they're also there apparently to be the arbiters of intention. And they have some machine that they can hook themselves up to or hook people up to that will determine whether or not they really meant it in a mean way or not when they illegally possessed top-secret classified information on servers that had no reason to be in their private home uh, and then had multiple devices destroyed while the FBI was on the way over to have a look at them. Let's just let's ignore all of that. The FBI is a political army made up of, yeah, at this point, politically motivated lawyers with guns. Um, that's, that's not going to end well for anyone who's not out there every day pushing the status quo. Here's another thing, Nico, I got to throw out. They can't look into Hunter Biden. Here's an example. Uh, this is from 2017. Former director of CIA's counterterrorism center joined Burisma's board, Kofer, Joseph Kofer Black, the former director of CIA's counterterrorist center between 1991. You get the point. When Hunter Biden was on Burisma's board getting paid, the former director of the CIA's counterterrorism center was also on Verismas board getting paid. While they were on there, Amos Hochstein, who right now is over uh, representing Joe Biden in Israel working on a gas deal with Lebanon, was on NAFTA Gas's board. NAFTA Gas is the official state gas company for Ukraine. Ukraine was an ATM. They were over there filling their pockets through corruption and they can't possibly. It's not just this is not a Hunter Biden story. This is that they, uh, uh, by the way, who else got paid over there? Nancy Pelosi's uh, son, what, Paul Pelosi Jr., Mitt Romney's get on and on. It is corruption of the elite ruling class, and it's not even really about Hunter Biden. They can't turn over any rocks anywhere near rocks near Hunter Biden. I'm thinking of crack rocks. That's a bad joke. But you get my point, <laughs> Nico. Yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's really about um, partially. So it's partially Hunter Biden, obviously, but that's because um, he has the closest link to Joe Biden. Uh, and obviously he was only able to be in that position because of Joe Biden. And if Joe Biden gets exposed in that particular case, then, you know, it just falls downhill from there. Every, everything, everything gets exposed. Everybody gets exposed. I feel like it's, it's like, I mean, even Hillary, right? Hillary was involved in it too. Uh, um, Podesta was involved with the Ukraine. I mean, the list really goes on. And so, which is, I also, I find it funny because then they say that Paul Manafort got arrested because of Russia Day, but it was really about, about real estate dealings in the Ukraine that he ultimately ended up beating the case on anyway. Right. So, and it, but you know, they pick and choose whenever your dealings in, in the Ukraine are corrupt. But the dominoes would fall in such a way 
that multiple, multiple uh, uh, Congress people, senators, their relatives, uh, uh, people that aren't even involved in U.S. politics, but overseas in the U.K. This is, I mean, the, everybody would go down because then you start getting back to the, the thing that we've been talking about the most lately, which is, uh, yeah, how many of them work with the neo-Nazis, doing business with Nazis, literal Nazis over there? And then uh, you got to start having some real conversations about exactly what we're doing, what, what uh, we're doing over there, how NATO was involved in, in perpetuating it, uh, why it was allowed to go on for so long. Do, is this really the reason why it brought articles of impeachment under Trump? Not because of, of some, some attempt to interfere or because he was bullying Zelensky, but rather because he saw that it was trying to hold him accountable. It really does open up a Pandora's box. Uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, the Clinton, one of the top donors for the Clinton Foundation was a Ukrainian billionaire by the name of Victor Pinchuk. It was an ATM. They were getting paid out of Ukraine and they cannot afford that. Liz Truss succeeds Boris Johnson. as Wait, you- Did Steve have a. Oh, Steve, did you have something before I go to the great Liz Truss? Um, yeah, you know what? Let's go ahead and move on to, to Liz Truss. I think Nico encapsulated it very well there. Liz Truss exceeds Boris Johnson as UK Prime Minister. Liz Truss, really? Um, it, it, look, you know what, Steve? If UK hadn't collapsed, they will now because Liz Truss is not exactly uh, Stephen Hawking. She ain't. I'll put it like that. Your thoughts, Steve? <laughs> Liz Truss is coming in there uh, as easily the most roundly unlike prime minister in a history uh, Boris Johnson's election notwithstanding of roundly unlike dislike prime ministers this is someone to, with whom they they've you know they don't want to insult lampposts by comparing her to she has <laughs> not demonstrated throughout the years her willingness to study and learn and, and take on new challenges what she's demonstrated is the same dead-eyed, soulless servitude to power that has elevated Kamala Harris to almost president. Um, And it's that dedication to making sure the whims of empire progress that have allowed her to be in this spot. Nico. Uh, actually, I'm not all too familiar with her. I'm just, uh, just aware of how unpopular she is. And I feel like, I mean, this is kind of the standard that they've been they've been uh, subjected to in the UK is just being, I mean, it's, I guess it's very similar to us. They just keep getting subjected to wildly unpopular people doing things and making policies that are also equally as unpopular. Uh, and it doesn't matter if they get out the unpopular person, or the unpopular one wins. So, I don't, you know, that's, that's basically where I'm at with it. Uh, but it was that joke that, that Garland made yesterday. He was like, man, I guess I would probably drop there too if I had to swear in. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, one, I, I one way to get way. out of going to lunch with Liz. What, what, Steve? What does it signal to you when Liz Truss steps to the podium and talks about arming the Ukraine, uh, backing this effort uh, till the end? I mean, she's she's parroting United States policy, and not to mention Annalena Baerbock, the um, Green Party representative and, and um, foreign minister in Germany says exactly the same thing. I don't care what the voters say. We're in this till the end. Everybody's talking about 
seeing this through to the end, as Garden likes to say, General Winter is coming across the horizon and going to put the deep freeze on on Europe for for uh, for in, in in another few weeks. Your thoughts? What what is what is her what's her messaging say to you? Um, well, when when people like Liz Truss, when Boris Johnson came out, when Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi came out. And they said, we are willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. And then they turned around and they said, hey, you are all Ukrainians now. <laughs> their own countrymen. We're all and Ukrainians now. stood up and said, yes, yeah, we are all Ukrainians. Well, unless you're yeah. black, because Ukrainians, do, oh, yeah, right. a lot of you, yeah, Ukrainians don't like black people. Right. That's very, Except for the women. The women I mean, this is. It's kind of what they meant, though, is that you guys are ultimately going to be paying the personal sacrifice for our war in the Ukraine. No, but I mean, that's so what she's done, though, is she said, look, we're going to I'm going to throw you a bone in the midst of destabilizing the entire economy. I'm going to set a price cap on your energy bills. Sure, it's going to be two and a half times more than what you paid seven months ago, but it's going to be less than it could be. And that's important. And that counts. And so she's going to try and do some economic end arounds while still going out of her way to follow whatever insane playbook the U.S. State Department has laid out before them in terms of, you know, potential forever war in the Ukraine. Speaking of that, Canadian finance minister and deputy prime minister Christian Freeland is one of the likely candidates set to replace NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. The selection of Freeland Granddaughter of the Ukrainian World War II Nazi collaborator Michael Chomiak would raise eyebrows. I can't wait. I'll tell you what it would raise. It would raise like a whole lot of hands in the Azov Battalion of their Nazi salute. Uh, this is a shocking thing. A Ukrainian Nazi may be running, uh, running NATO. Let's start with you, Nico. Uh, uh, I-, I can't believe it. I, about to say, I thought there, I mean, the original... Wasn't it a NATO originally ran by a Nazi? I'm not, I'm not crazy, <laughs> yeah. right? Literally. Okay, I just want to yeah. make sure. Getting back to its okay. roots. And then we and we have been like literally helping Ukrainian neo Nazis since a Ukrainian neo Nazi was actually a thing, right? Like like since the very beginning, we've been helping them. Okay, so it's, really, it's not that surprising. If anything, this is par for the course. Um, helping Nazis seems that we just gave Nazis about what seven hundred billion or seven hundred million dollars. Is that what that was? Yes, it's like this almost seven hundred. I think we're up to I think we're up to sixty seven billion now. Yeah, 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 exactly. So this is this is par for the course. But I think what's kind of uh, what's kind of scary about it is just how open they are with this type of stuff now. They don't even hide it anymore. They're making sure that we're yeah we're going to put our Nazis in power. I don't I don't see what the problem is. We've been doing it for the last you know almost hundred years. I haven't had a problem with it. Which to some degree they are correct, right? Nobody really said much about it. But um, I just I just feel as if we need to be able to communicate with more people just how serious this entire situation is. Because we have a lot of leftists right now that I think are somewhat detached from the Ukraine situation, right? But I'm like, you guys always, we, we know how there's like KKK and the FBI and how there are racists in power, just how, how systematic racism works, or systemic racism rather. However, we're, this is systemic Racism, authoritarianism, literal fascism on, on a global scale. And the policies are reflecting it. 
right? Like, I mean, I know you made the joke about black people getting kicked out of or getting kicked out of Ukraine or getting killed or whatever, whatever. Like, yeah, that was a joke, but it's also reality. No, that's why. Right? That's why I said it because because I was it the Red Cross that had to post on their website Peace Corps. The Peace Corps had to post on their website to volunteers that were going to the to Ukraine to volunteers of color be prepared to be called monkey be prepared yeah. to be called out of your name and tell them to deal with it right tell them to deal with it right and then look at look at the the rhetoric that was coming out of the european countries whenever you were dealing with the the ukrainian refugees they're white like us they look like us like all of a sudden they were extremely accepting of refugees. But when it comes to Arab or black or brown people or Muslim, all of a sudden they have a problem with refugees. Like that is, they're not refugees anymore. What do they call them? They call them immigrants or they call them illegals or whatever. They're no longer refugees at that point. Right. Like if you wonder why that seems to be so socially acceptable, if you wonder why these policies are getting passed, well, then look who is in power. Like that is what we really have to start looking at. I understand, like, it, it, it seems like it's very simple, but I feel like oftentimes these two things are being disconnected from one another, uh, even though we're living the consequences of those people that, uh, that come from those people in power every day. Steve, before you respond, let me add this. The selection of Freeland, granddaughter of the Ukrainian World War II Nazi collaborator Michael Chomiak, would raise eyebrows, not least in Russia. The politician has paid tribute to Chomiak's legacy. So not only is she not only is she this guy's granddaughter, but she pays tribute to his legacy despite knowing he was quote the edit chief editor of a Nazi newspaper in Poland that vilified Jews during the Second World War. She reportedly speaks Ukrainian at home a former Moscow bureau chief of the Financial Times. She's been banned from Russia for a number of years due to her strong support for the post-Maidan regime in Kiev. And I would assume that being a post-Maidan regime would have some ties to neo-Nazis. Steve. Papa may have been a Nazi. And we may tribute. I mean, how do you, you don't walk around from that. You don't. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm the granddaughter of the Nazi newspaper guy um, here to propagandize to you. It's, Nico's right. They just, they, they're showing everybody uh, exactly who they are in this moment. And, and honestly, when I first got into political journalism or reporting, whatever, if you would have told me, hey, by the time 2022 rolls around, they will have open support of real Nazis with the children or grandchildren of the original Nazis running NATO and the Canadian government, the rest of the Five Eyes governments, the ones that ostensibly fought them in the first place, I would have handed you some tinfoil. But here we are, where they're just that brazen about it, that, to me, signals a couple of things. It, it signals that they're aware that uh, that hiding it wasn't going to do much good because we live in the age of the Internet now, and that was going to get out anyway. But it also tells me that they're scared enough and desperate enough about the collapse of the empire that they're willing to show a little bit of their behind if it means that people will look at that and not at what they're grabbing. There's two articles I got to put together because you can't not 
First article, Maine gas pipeline to EU will be closed until sanctions lifted Kremlin. So, you know, they whatever whatever uh, problems that they're having, whatever technical problems they have, for some reason, if the sanctions are lifted, those technical problems are going to suddenly go away. The other one is this, and it's connected, around 70,000 people protest against Czech government, NATO in Prague, as General Winter as Wilmer and I have been talking about, is about to make his ga- to gallop on his mighty white snow-covered horse into Europe. Uh, the Europeans got across, problems. Across the tundra. Yeah, across the tundra. He's bringing some hey, friends hey. with him. Uh, I thought the, we had problems. The, Europe's are come, <laughs> the Europeans are going to the street. I have a feeling, Nico, they ain't going to be happy. Your thoughts? And, and I know they won't be warm. Yeah, exactly. that's for sure. <laughs> that but they won't sure. be able to yeah, feel their toes. And they'll be hungry. Look, look, like the queen said, hold up. So Russia's cutting the gas off for the, the whole winter? All of the winter, you say. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go ahead and head out. Doc. Good luck, good luck. I mean, I know a lot of people are like, oh, they want to make sure she's taken care of. I say, no, you can't make sure somebody. See, it's one thing we can just buy the gas. But if there is no gas to buy, <laughs> you're in a whole different world, right? Yeah. Chip, no, chip, 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 cheerio. <laughs> so what we talked about before, how Russia has actually been very, very reasonable with the way they've engaged with the UK. I feel like them saying, A, because of what's going on economically, we're making sure that everybody buys our gas and rubles from now on. I feel like that's very reasonable, right? Even though we're in beef with you right now, we'll still allow you to buy the gas. You just have to do it uh, with uh, rubles. They didn't want to listen. So they kept fighting, they kept fighting, they kept smearing, they kept lying, they kept killing Russians, they kept killing Ukrainians. And so Russians said, you know what? Okay, I'm done with this. We're just going to cut y'all off completely. We don't even need y'all money anymore, actually, because <laughs> we have the best economy in the world now. <laughs> so with that being said, good luck. And now you see this attempt from, media, from the media to be like, oh, Russia is cutting off the UK. No, 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 excuse me, sir. Like, I didn't, I don't, you don't shoot, well, you can't shoot yourself. But I'm saying, like, if you were murdered by somebody, nobody framed it as if, he made this man murder him. Like, well, did you run up on him? Did you try to shoot at him first? Like, no, like you, you, you ran up and then somebody defended themselves. Like you tested Russia over and over and over again. And then this is the result. You and your, the fact that, by the way, go back to what you said earlier, the fact that she said, it doesn't matter what the voters want. Okay. If I was in the UK or if I was in Europe in general, everybody, I would be terrified. Cause that basically means <laughs> they don't have to care about what you want. Cause you actually have no control over your election either. So that's a whole other thing. Well, you know, Annalena Baerbach was literally at a conference called Democracy in Danger. And while she was there, she said, I don't care what the what the what the what the that's why she was there, because she's one of those that's danger to democracy. Uh, That explains it. That explains it all. Steve Poikin, uh, your thoughts on uh, the uh, let's face it, the people of Europe at some point things. Let's just say. Things could get violent, Steve, Think, and people could get eaten, okay? People could get eaten. The Donner Pass could come to— Donner know. Pass politics. Soylent Green was <laughs> set in 2022. And Soylent Green is people? Oh, no, Steve. Well, you just spoiled it for everyone, Wilmer. <laughs> you did. Um, the, uh, if, if, you know, early lockdown indicators are any sign— of how human beings are going to act once the heat gets cut off for real <laughs> or once the food gets really hard to find for real. Europe is in for one hell of a winter. <laughs> it, it's going to get very, very messy very, very quick. And Nico's right. that When, uh, when Baerbach comes out and says the votes don't matter, 
that means that the voters aren't the people who determine who wins the election. That's the only message you can take from that. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know how often Europe has had to deal with that. In America, we have to deal with a, a rigged election every couple of years, so we're used to it by now. But but over there, you know, that I, I honestly don't know how much of a, an issue election integrity is. So the shock from that alone may be enough to uh, to push them over the edge. But at the same time, we also have to remember that the Netherlands is sitting on one of the largest gas fields in Europe. According to them, they have enough gas to supply all of Europe what Russia did for at least three years right now. Oh, so. So there's going to be so now it's about who's going to be able to uh, push other countries out of those contracts and who's going to squeeze their peasants the longest before they can tap into what uh, the the oil field or the sorry the gas field in the Netherlands. Yeah, I about to say it seems like that's what like if that if that's true because I'm sure that they've known that they've known that for a while now, right? Wouldn't that mean uh, that the people are the government is purposely freezing their their subjects. I mean, I mean, that's the only thing I could take away from that. Right. It's interesting that you asked that because I can't remember one of our earlier guests today. Uh, it might have been Dr. Tahid who said or maybe it was um, uh, Dr. Jack Rasmus who said the European heads of state are more afraid of the economic sanctions that the United States will impose upon them if they violate the United States dictate than they are about the response from their own people. Well, yeah, but I feel like it's also the same thing that the U.S. has done to us, right? Whereas how do you justify, how do you get people behind this war? You say you don't have any gas, like literal gas, like oil, we're running out of oil, or they're, in their case, they're running out of natural gas. And then you say, but if we go beat them up, all the problems are solved. I feel like that's where the play is. It's just simply not working as, as well as they thought it is. So I, I tend to agree with Steve where they're trying to squeeze them as much as they can before they ultimately do turn, turn to the Netherlands. But then you potentially end up making Netherlands a superpower. Uh, and you don't want, like, if you're Europe or the U.S., perhaps you don't want that because the Netherlands are a little bit unpredictable. I want to go. I want to go back to a point that uh, Nico that you made a little earlier, and and I because I, I think this is very important, and people are overlooking it. When if if we go back, for example, there were there were twelve founding NATO countries. Now we have thirty, and uh, Gorbachev was promised that NATO would not expand any further eastward towards towards Russia. That has been violated. We know we know that President Putin has been saying for years, y'all need to cut this out because you're you're going to you're going to piss me off. Uh, When they went to Geneva in July, Putin told Biden, I'm going to send you my demands, my security demands in writing, and I want you to respond in writing. The United States ignored him. And so finally, President Putin said, "Okay, enough of you guys. This is what I'm going to handle this business. So so now we look at this gas situation and he's saying I'm shutting off Nord Stream 1 y'all ain't getting any gas these he is responding to the actions by the west no matter what narrative you want to use it's not his being aggressive it's his responding 
And unfortunately, the West isn't really paying attention, or maybe they are, and this is all by design, that, uh, you know, this guy isn't playing. We, two minutes for each of you. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that what we're going to see, because Russia hasn't really made too many strategic mistakes over the last, you know, six, seven, eight months, um, is we're going to see an exhaustion on part of the Europeans, on part of the people who have to fight on the ground in this war in Ukraine. I think the the soldiers themselves are going to be further and further demoralized. And I think that it, it, sooner than later, probably about that second cold snap, uh, <laughs> reality is going to set in to the point to where the people on the ground in uniform are going to start making more of the decisions than the people who are living comfortably in, in halls of government. Nico, to that point, the rumor is Zelensky isn't long for this process. I was going to say long for the world, but he's not long for the process, that the target's on him. So when the when the soldiers start making the decisions that Steve is referencing, uh, some of those that are still warm and full may decide that, or the United States. I mean, because um, uh, Tony Blinken's in Ukraine right now, from what I if I if I read that right, mm-hmm. and I wonder what he's telling Zelensky. I mean, if you're Zelensky, I'm, I mean, I'm, I feel like he's bought everything he can buy, right? You know, <laughs> and people are still dying around him, and he's realizing, oh damn, I actually got to go back. To being the president after I get done buying this stuff and then playing everything I could play and going on the place I could go. Yeah. So who do you think is going to, I mean, he, I, I mean, I hope he knows who the fall guy is in this whole situation. I hope he knows this. Cause this is what happens when you do business with the U S it is literally better to be an enemy of the U S than it is to do business with the U S. <laughs> well, what, what, what did, what did Henry Kissinger say? It's, it's dangerous to be an enemy of the United States, but it's fatal to be an ally. Oh, did he really say that? Well, there you go. Yeah, he really did. Henry Kissinger. Wow, that's crazy. Henry Kissinger said And that. he would know because he was killed a lot of allies. There, there we go. Hey, ask Russia. That's what happened with the Bolshevik Revolution. It was all set up. Like, what, what was the setup to break up <laughs> Russia and, and, and take down Germany because they were beating us in the Industrial Revolution? And so, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know what they're going to do, but Azelinski is about to be on his own. Nico House, and because I'm thinking that, that – uh, Secretary of State Blinken is carrying the Bojo message to uh, still carrying that Bojo message to Zelensky. Uh, now's not the time for you to negotiate. Yeah, you still got a lot of living Ukrainians that can get out there and die, man. As long as there's Ukrainians left to die, I need, you, you should need to be working, buddy. Steve Poikin and Nico House, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Enjoy your weekends. We look forward to having you guys back. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
Peace groups decry billions more in U.S. military aid as Blinken visits Ukraine. Quote, the White House and Congress are fueling this war with a steady stream of weapons instead of pushing for talks to end the conflict, end quote. That's Medea Benjamin of Code Pink. For insight into this, let's turn to our next panel. We are joined by a diverse communications professional. He's got a background in leading communications departments, and he's a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, sir, welcome back. Great to be here. We're also joined by a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of the op-ed, The Wrinkle, Abortion Rights, Vaccine Passports, and Bodily Autonomy. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, sir, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So this is a uh, common dreams piece. As the Biden administration on Thursday announced billions of dollars in additional aid for Ukraine's defense against uh, Russia, peace activists renewed calls for a diplomatic solution to the nearly seven-month war. Quote, the White House and Congress are fueling this war with a steady stream of weapons instead of pushing for talks to end the conflict, according to Medea Benjamin. That's why we, the people, have to rise up with a demand of negotiations, not escalation. Let me start with you, Jim Cavanaugh, because I I believe that Medea is absolutely right. But when people like former prime minister of uh, Britain, Boris Johnson, when they go to Zelensky, who was on the verge from what I've read early on in this to reaching a negotiated settlement, they tell him, no, no, you can't do that. And Tony Blinken is there now. And it seems like Tony's saying the same thing. Yeah, look, you know, this is what I wrote about in my Ukraine negotiation kabuki. It's a naive for people to be thinking that there's going to be some negotiation, which is, you know, what people think of as, oh, each side's going to give something up and get something, and they'll be all dissatisfied, satisfied, and blah, blah, blah. That's not going to happen. Medea Benjamin in this article, you know, was quoted as saying, we should support a diplomatic solution along the lines of the Minsk to peace peace accords. That is not going to happen. There's not going to be a Minsk three. There were already negotiations that went on for eight years. The Minsk agreement was in place since 1914, 1915. Then a Minsk II came in. And then at the very end, they had the Normandy format where the British and the, uh, the, the French and the uh, Germans, I think, said, oh, we're going to make sure that they, they, uh, uh, Ukraine abides by it this time. They didn't. So this attack by Russia, this offensive action by Russia in this long war of Ukraine since 1914, since before that, uh, occurred because they gave they they said we will these negotiations are baloney and they have now reached a stage where there is no going back to a situation before they recognize Donetsk and Lugansk as independent nations. They're not going on, going back on that. And the only thing that's going to happen in negotiations are going to be the negotiations of the terms of surrender or one side or another. If you know if and this is what the, the, the principles know. This is what the United States knows. And this is what Russia knows. Russia is, and now they've reached a stage where, where, you know, as you said, in April, maybe it would have been possible for Russia to say, okay, we'll hang on to Crimea and Donetsk and Lugansk. And, you know, but there's not going to be any more, we're not going to rescind their, their recognition of those independent countries. And so the only way you could get back to that is if Ukraine would somehow push Russia all the way back. And then they're going to stop there. And the Russians have now you know, taken territories and pushed Ukraine out of the, minst, the Kiev government out of territories where those people in those territories don't want that government back in. So the Russians are in a state now where they're being 
told, we don't want you to leave. <laughs> so it's a very difficult situation. And everybody on the top knows this is going to be decided after some kind of negotiation that that certifies the result of a military defeat and or victory of one side or the other. So, Dr. Colin Campbell, uh, do they need to sail the USS Missouri into the Black Sea the way that they that the here I think it was Hirohito who surrendered in World War II? Is is that what they have to do here? You know, I'm not sure what they'll need to sell, but there has been a lot of money going into the support for Ukraine. So far, it's amounted to almost $14 billion that have gone into uh, the U.S. giving money to Ukraine. And, you know, of, of interest as well is that nuclear plant that has received some heavy shelling around it, which is raising uh, a bit of concern. And I think that Zelensky really wants to stay connected with the U.S. He believes that, the you know, getting money from the U.S., the U.S. also helping to support NATO allies through some of this funding is the only way to guarantee that he may be able to return Ukrainians back to the lands that they have been pushed from and trying to, of course, create that bulwark, trying to keep Russia back from in, in their further incursion into Ukrainian territory. So this, these billions of dollars that have been provided since February are what Zelensky believes is a is a insurance policy, you know, and and trying to try to win his side of the war. Obviously, at the same time, there are concerns being raised that all of this money that's being pumped into this conflict is not going to go as far as people had anticipated, because Russia has warned that they will continue, and that a few, I believe, it was a couple months ago where they said they were still warming up. So it's still unclear how much they want to continue or how much they're going to ramp up their part of the conflict as American taxpayers are footing the bill for these billions of dollars that are being put into supporting Ukraine. Uh, let me throw something at you, Jim. Four stories. I'll just put them all together. Number one, Jackson's MSNBC. Jackson's water crisis is a racist hostage situation. A city in Jackson, Mississippi, 83 uh, percent black. It would take two billion dollars to fix its water and sewer system. They can't do it. Here's another one. Congress is letting free school lunch program expire for 10 million dollars. Here's another one. Columbus teachers strike and Columbus teachers, they're striking because they don't have heating and air conditioning in their rooms. This is a failed state. We got $40 billion. They gave $13.6 billion in March, $40 billion in May, another $11.7 billion. We're up to about $67 billion, and we have children that don't have lunch, heating and air conditioning, entire cities that don't have water. This is a failed state. Jim Cavanaugh. And the people in Flint, Michigan Flint, still Flint, Michigan, don't have a billion and a half to fix drinking it. Water. Nothing. Barack Obama. Jim, Jim Cavanaugh. Is going on since at least Flint, you know, and it's going to be worse. It's going to go on in other in other parts of the country, in other cities. You know, the infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, the social spending, the social lives of people are, are are being degraded daily and weekly. And, you know, I, and let me just say, I, you know, I'm not I, they could spend money on all of this stuff if they wanted the money. If they take they don't have to take money from Ukraine to spend it on the, these cities. But what you're seeing is precisely they're making priority decisions about what their priorities are and what their values are. And for them, it's extremely important to maintain 
the, the military pressure against Russia, and it's extremely unimportant to maintain the social lives of American citizens. You know, there should be health care. There should be, you know, the water crisis, not just the inf- not just the fact that there's no drinking water, there's going to be no water. <laughs> you know, yeah. we have drought situations. Uh, and, and this has been going on. It's been developing for years, and everybody knows it, and they've done nothing about it. But they have made sure they protect the bankers and they maintain the, uh, the military spending. And Colin, before you respond, I'll just quickly say one of the adages I think I coined is budgets are numeric representations of priority. And you can send these billions to Ukraine, but the people in Jackson and the people in Flint don't have clean drinking water. One more quick article. In July, members of the Ukrainian parliament decided to increase their salaries by (laughs) 70 percent. We are paying their salaries out of, I, I mean, I don't blame them. Look, as, as uh, what was it, P.T. Barnum said, it's a crime against God and nature to allow a sucker to keep his money. They're supposed to give them 170%. Why not? If the suckers are going to give you money, take it. Uh, Colin Powell. I mean, Colin Powell, for God's sake, Colin Campbell. <laughs> you got Colin it. Powell's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, Colin. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I've been compared to worse people. Um, By better. But uh, yeah, so the listen, this is a a big crisis, right? You had historic flooding in the South and the the residents of Jackson, Mississippi are still dealing with that. And then you have, of course, the failures within the Biden administration to pull their people together, or at least enough people to pass any type of comprehensive infrastructure spending. Now, it's unclear of how much of that money, say that Build Back Better program had passed, or say that an, and another infrastructure bill had passed. It's unclear of how much that would have gone to a city like Jackson or to Flint, Michigan. But it stands to reason that we are seeing the decay of various projects and civil engineering issues across the nation that need attention in a most, uh, in a most uh, serious way here. And so when we look at the money that's being spent overseas, and we look at the the eroding and decaying uh, buildings, venues, um, dams, uh, just, you know, like I said, projects that really need more substantive infrastructure here. It's very alarming. And of course, we can't forget who are the people that are most adversely affected by these deficiencies and breakdowns in our U.S. government. And those are usually black people. Um, so some people would say black and brown, but um, and, and that's possible, too. But we do know that it's a lot of black people, black Americans who are adversely affected by this. And they always seem to be the ones with the short end of the stick, um, especially when you compare class into this as well. Those who are in lower socioeconomic conditions who are dealing with these things on on a daily basis and really looking for the government for help. Meanwhile, it seems like their attention and priorities are focused elsewhere, not in their communities, which just builds frustration because we do have a democratic administration in in, uh, the, in the two branches of government, the legislative and, and the executive, of course. And they're, they're thinking, well, it makes no difference who's in office. They start to divest from the political process. And then you have this downhill slope of these disaffected people who continue to be disenfranchised from the political process and what some would say are the promises of a democracy in America. Switching gears, 
Common Dreams, rejecting Israeli report on journalists killing, Senator demands independent U.S. probe. Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland is re-upping his demand for an independent probe into the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh after rejecting the findings of a new report issued by the Israeli army, which claimed its soldiers may have accidentally shot the reporter. Uh, Jim, when a sniper accidentally (laughs) shoots someone under their ear, right between their helmet and the end of of their Kevlar vest, that, I I don't know how much of an accident that can be, but I will say I'm, I'm incredibly impressed that Chris Van Hollen is finding the guts to make the statements that he's making. Jim Cavanaugh. I mean, very good for him. And you're absolutely right. You know, and I wrote about this in the Gaza thing when they were shooting the medics, you know, and they, they there was one day when they just happened by accident to shoot like five medics or six medics, including that that one young mm-hmm. woman who was killed. And uh, and the, the Israeli government, the Israeli army was boasting. We know precisely where every round goes. A sniper shot is not a drive-by shooting. Snipers work in teams. They have a spotter and a shooter. And that's what the Israel, I guarantee there's at least two people involved in that shooting who deliberately chose their target. They didn't do it under fire. They weren't, it was a crossfire. And as you say, they had to place that bullet precisely between the edge of her helmet and the edge of her Kevlar vest, vest, which is, you know, two inches or something. That was a precise shot done on purpose. And everybody who has any ounce of intellectual honesty knows it. And uh, good for this guy, for Senator, well, give me, let's give his name, Senator Van Hollen, for, for uh, sticking on this and for bringing it up. It's not going to go anywhere. United States government, the United States Certainly the executive branch, the legislative branch, Republican or Democrat, are never going to do anything about it. Israel has absolutely impunity for this. They said the other day, we are not going to allow anybody to tell us whom we can shoot. And that's that's the case. And Colin Campbell. I believe with some added pressure, we're going to see some action. I don't know if anything will ultimately manifest that is you know, of the effort and the results that many would be looking for. But when you talk about Van Hollen leading several several Democratic senators um, demanding that the Biden administration create an independent probe, I think that, you know, there's still going to be constant pressure on the Biden administration to come up with some results on this, even if it is uh, performative in nature. Um, this is a woman who has been around for more than who had been more uh, been around for more than two decades reporting in the Middle East. She was well known to not just Palestinians as she's Palestinian American, but she was also well known to Israel, Israelis and the IDF. I mean, when you're reporting in that kind of environment. You're wearing a big blue vest with press on it. I mean, it's very obvious. And being that she had such a had such longevity in that region reporting on those issues, it's highly unlikely uh, many would believe that this was by, quote, 
unquote, an accident. Uh, this was, you know, again, uh, a sniper bullet. Usually snipers, they have ranges, they have a, 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 a telescope or a scope on their guns to see exactly what they're shooting and where they're shooting, because you have to be pretty precise to be a sniper. You can't just grab a gun and just shoot willy-nilly. It's not like That's a That's what makes this you a very, sniper. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. That's the very definition with a sniper. It's like surgery with a gun. And for, for it to be an accident is, is highly unlikely. So when you have a woman who's had this president, the presence, when you have, when you talk about her sartorial, uh, her sartorial obligation of wearing press on her, on her chest, and then you're talking about a sniper that killed her. And then initially we can't forget that Israel said that most likely a Palestinian had killed her, um, you know, trying to steer people away. It's, it seems very fishy. And I think that Van Hollen would be justified, especially, uh, trying to corral other Democrats and addressing what really happened here. Can I add one more thing? Sure. On Monday, Ned Price, State Department spokesperson, Mr. Useless, said the administration welcomed, quote, Israel's review of this tragic incident, end quote, adding only that, quote, policies and procedures to prevent similar incidents from occurring in the future should be examined. Uh, Jim, let me add this. When Tony Blinken runs around the world saying we're for human rights, why that country over there, they're doing human wrongs and that country over there. And we all people. This is why nobody pays attention to it, because people can look at what's happening. God forbid anybody that visits, you know, uh, uh, Israel or Jerusalem sees it, you know, aghast with their own eyes. But this is what lays bare the lie that is the U.S.'s moral crusade around the world for human rights, Jim. Well, absolutely, of course. There's, there's no morality involved in this whatsoever. And I want to emphasize what uh, one of the things that Colin said. This is an American citizen, this this woman who was killed. It's a well-known journalist and an American citizen. The last in a line of them, Rachel Corey, and uh, there was a Turkish-American kid who was killed on a, one of the uh, by the Israelis on, on one of the, the ships to Gaza. And of course, you know, but the the the, the American naval ship that was sunk that was the liberty to be sunk, that, liberty that was attacked the liberty by the Gaza, which the president of the united states got on the phone and told the commander of the aircraft carrier that was sending planes to defend that not to do it okay so nothing has changed about that <laughs> so and, 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 and you know if they allow the israelis to attack an american ship uh, and the president of the united states gets on the phone and tells the commander to his shock to with to recall the planes that he already had taken off. Nobody, nobody. If 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 you if there's a debate about this incident in the Congress and that isn't brought up and Rachel Corey isn't brought up and I'm sorry I forgot the other kid's name isn't brought up, then it's a fake debate. And if they don't talk about very simply just canceling the U.S. aid that the that we provide because. In most instances, that aid is in violation of the Arms Export Control Act. Uh, the, the, the solution to this is very, very simple. It's Because right now what you're doing is you're getting what you're paying for and you're rewarding bad behavior. When you reward bad behavior, all you get is more bad behavior. Yeah, but 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 Wilmer, let's face it. If we don't continue to give aid to Israel, they can't have free college and um, free health care for everybody. Oh, they probably still could. Yeah, yeah. 
Forget Unlike what we have. Right, gentlemen? Priorities, as they say. All you right. can't forget that her home was raided after she was killed by Israeli forces as well. And mm-hmm. when they carried her coffin through the streets, you had people supporting her who were also confronted by uh, IDF correct. and police forces there. So, you know, there's a lot of obfuscation on behalf of what people would say is the IDF and Israel itself. FBI officials told agents not to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop ahead of the 2020 election. Uh, a whistleblower has claimed FBI officials instructed agents not to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop ahead of the 2020 presidential election, saying the bureau was not going to change the outcome of the election again. This is according to Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin. Uh, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts? Yeah, they... they the FBI has been screwed up on this in 18 different ways. And they they did something to Hillary that she had a right to complain about, which was, you know, give a, give a press conference, say, we're not going to indict her, but really she did a lot of bad things. You don't do that, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and in this case, you know, they, they sat on something. They have to make a choice. One thing or the other affects the outcome of the election. Not investigating affects the outcome of the election. Okay, you got to investigate quietly and do your job and not give press conferences and come up with results. But, you know, to 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 agree to 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 forbid the agency to forbid the agents to investigate is a political choice to not do something they think might have been damaging and very well might have been damaging to Biden. I mean, these are kind of and they're still not talking about them. They have people saying we got we put 10 billion aside for the big guy. 10, mil- 10 million aside for the big guy. And, you know, that's kind of <laughs> prima facie evidence of some corruption there. So, you know, it's we know what's going on. And we know that in the election, the FBI agents were uh, explicitly saying they wanted to prevent Trump from being being reelected. And it's a mess. And it's it's the politicization of the FBI in a way that partisan in terms of partisan politics, you know, is is crazy and it's going to cause a lot of anger, reasonably so, among the people who uh, didn't want Biden to be elected. You know, let me say this, uh, Colin, and because you know, in in it's things are so partisan, it's it's kind of hard to get people to you know see this sometimes. I don't care how much you dislike Trump. Wrong is, as Malcolm X said, wrong is wrong no matter who does it. I don't care, I care if you're the most diehard Democrat in the world. You can't look at this and say any allegation that's made against Trump is going to be investigated to the as far as you can, they can possibly investigate it. We know that for a fact. And now they look at something against Biden and Hunter Biden and they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, let's let's go get lunch. Maybe we'll get it later. And they don't touch it. You know, I don't care how partisan somebody is. This is pretty blatant here, uh, uh, Colin. Yeah, (laughs) there's supposed to be a perception that the FBI can't be politicized and that there aren't partisan uh, maneuvers and, and mechanisms in place to shut down news. This would definitely not be the story that would sway people's minds. When looking at certain polls, Rasmussen, which is a little bit right leaning, but they looked at, they polled about a thousand people and it was apparent to them that about 63% of those people said that this story was very important. About 17% said that it was not important. If we remember around that time that the news broke, there was very little coverage about it. And even Mark Zuckerberg, obviously the CEO of, uh, of Facebook, leader of Facebook, he 
issued a mea culpa saying that, you know, he was regretful in trying to downplay the importance of that story. So there was almost like this systemic shutdown of that information. So when you had the former president talking about big data shutting down stories, and a lot of people really wanted to discredit him on saying that, uh, because he did say a lot of other things that were uh, definitely bent the boundary of verisimilitude. But on this, he may have had a very strong point where you had various interests trying to shut this story down because it may have swayed the election or made the FBI look like it was trying to play politics. Either way, it does look like an obfuscation of justice, clarity, and definitely transparency. Here's what I think, too. There was so much corruption in Ukraine. You know, when you look at the people that were making money there, that maybe this wasn't about the election and swaying the election. It was about people saying, why is a former CIA director in Ukraine on the board of Burisma with Hunter Biden? You know, what, when you start looking at the names that went to Ukraine and were like on the board, it, it's more like to me, not just the election, it's this is corruption that's going on at the highest levels and they cannot allow for that door to be open, that it doesn't have to really to do with Trump or the election. It has to do with the reality of the corruption. Jim. Well, and, oh, and, and Jim, before you respond to that, let me just also add that could very well be the reason why it's still not being done, because we're talking about the fact that the laptop investigation has not gone further We'll take it further. Release the emails. Let us see what the content is. This is not that hard to figure out. This, this is not going to require a four-year in-depth investigation. Release the damn emails, and the, they'll speak for themselves. Jim Cavanaugh. It's not just Ukraine. It was China in there, too. I think the $10 right. million was, was a China thing. So it is a massive corruption. It's the, it's the business model of, of Washington politicians who become multimillionaires after four or five years. And as you know, Harry Truman said, you know, any politician who, makes, who comes out of it making money uh, is a crook. Uh, and, uh, and so there is a level of that, you know, where the Democrats, uh, whoever is being investigated, the other side is saying, you know, if you go too far with your guy, with our guy, we have the crap on your guy too, and we'll bring it out because they all do have the crap, right? So, you know, this is a level, this, there's some of that involved here, but I do think, I got to say, I do think that, 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 that it's been blatantly skewed about Trump. They, they really have a kind of bugbear in their, uh, up there, uh, uh, but behind their ears, behind their ears about, about Donald Trump. And, uh, they've, they've, They've gone after him in a way that really is, and I think purposely, uh, infuriating his base and, and, and creating a partisan divide that's filled with anger and hard to overcome. Final, uh, final. We can't ignore oh, go the ahead. timing of this as well, that it was, remember, that when the story was released was October 2020, and you had the FBI saying, giving this kind of veiled or, or kind of cryptic uh, warning that this could have implications for the election. And this is these are the messages that were sent to Zuckerberg, at least, when it came to uh, coverage and, you know, putting that, adding that as part of the algorithm of coverage. So you have to appreciate the timing uh, on this as well, I believe. I got to add one thing, though, but they lied. 
They went to Zuckerberg and they said, we think that may be Russian uh, misinformation. But they had the laptop and they knew for a fact that it wasn't. So if they had, you know, if they had the best interest, they would have went there and told them the truth and said, well, we don't want it out because it'll it'll it may affect the election. Of course, we know it's true, but we don't want it out. But they couldn't do that. So they lied. Dr. Colin Campbell, <laughs> Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, gentlemen, thank you both so much. Have wonderful weekends. We really appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Look forward to returning. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. And on behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 